Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 29. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. The sons of Israel were among those who came to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all of its people. His brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food, they said. We are all sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants are not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see the weakness of the land. But they replied, we, your servants, were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. Then Joseph said to them, I have spoken, you are spies. This is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be imprisoned so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you are honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go and take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. Then they said to each other, obviously we are being punished for what we did to our brother. We saw his deep distress when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this trouble has come to us. But Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph understood them, since there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. When he looked back and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and had, them, had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their containers with grain, return each man's silver to his sack, and give them provisions for their journey. This order was carried out. They loaded the grain on their donkeys and left there. At the place where they lodged for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey. He saw his silver there at the top of his bag. He said to his brothers, my silver has been returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank. Trembling, they turned to one another and said, what is this that God has done to us? 
When they reached their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your truth for us. Thank you for your word for us. Thank you for declaring us free. God, even when we don't feel free, when we look at things that tell us we are not free, that freedom is something you have offered and declared and accomplished for us. And God, I pray that we would indeed feel that, and not just free from uh, things and people that we would consider enemies, God. I, I pray that you would free us from ourselves. I pray that you would show us the things that are uh, forms of bondage, forms of prisons in our own emotions, our own minds, our own hearts. God, will you indeed free us from ourselves today through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We, we have been going through Genesis now for a couple of months and, and really walking through uh, this big picture, this big view, this bird's eye view, but then drilling down deep into, A, what were we created for and what does it mean to be restored back to that original plan, that original blueprint? When we look at Genesis and we see this incredible creation story, this incredible story of all the world being created and people being created. And what does it mean for us to be restored back to that original blueprint? This blueprint that was there that says, I'm, I know how to rightly relate to God. I know how to rightly relate to one another. I know how to rightly relate to creation until the fall happens. And as soon as the fall happens, all three of these relationships are out of whack. And so from that point to now, we have been seeing the evidence of all those relationships out of whack. And so we're trying to say, well, what does it mean then if Jesus comes to say, I'm not only here to just make sure that you don't uh, end up in hell. I'm not only here to give you a form of fire insurance. I'm here to restore everything that was broken at the fall. I'm here to restore those broken relationships. Today, we're going to talk deeply about what does it mean to restore broken relationships, specifically relationships in which you have either been the one doing the hurting or you're the one that's been hurt. Look, there's no question that when you, one of the hardest things to do, if a stranger hurts you, they do something to offend you, they do something to cause something injurious upon you, and you are really hurt and you're angry, but you never have to see them again then you can just be angry, but you never have to engage them anymore. They can just be that person. They, they don't even become a person anymore. They're that figure. They're that thing that you can kind of call whatever names you want and just settle in your own mind and keep moving. But what about the people that you have to be in their face over and over and over again? What about the people that are relatives, people that, that you are around, people that you love, but you feel like, I don't know that I can trust because of what's occurred? How do you, how do we, what's God's heart on this? How do we engage those that have caused us pain? And if we have caused pain, how do we engage those upon which we have inflicted injury? Because if you're honest, and I think I can speak for myself, I've been both of those. And a lot of times it's hard to remember that you've been one. Uh, if, if you've been a person that's ever been injured, it can be really easy to only focus on the fact that you've been injured and overlook all the ways you've been an injurer. And so we need both of these for us today. We need to figure out, Lord, what is your heart? What do you show us as, as relates to how to properly reconcile? Why should we even be talking about this? Because ultimately what we talk about and what we'll say 
in order to resolve problems is we offer a cheap form of reconciliation. If you've been hurt before and other people around you know that you've been hurt, they can just say, you just need to forgive and get past it. Just get over it. If you've been hurt and nothing has been done to resolve the hurt, some of the worst advice we often get or give is, well, you just got to resolve in your mind and just get over it. You just got to put it in the back of your mind. You're new, we'll use good Christian language. You're a new creature in Christ and everything's cast away, cast into the sea of forgetfulness, blah, 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 blah. We'll say all these things. And yet that is not at all what we see modeled in the scriptures. That's good conventional knowledge. That's not godly wisdom. Because God doesn't care just about us and our ability to practice forbearance and just overlook every single pain and, 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 and hurt. There's a degree to which we have to do that. But ultimately, God's goal is reconciling. Not just agreeing to disagree, letting the pain still be there. Because ultimately, what you end up doing, if you do the cheap reconciliation thing, it's not real reconciliation. It's just, hey, you sit with this L all this time and just never bring it up. You sit with this pain, this weight all this time, and I'll put the shaming kind of Christianese on you to say, well, if that's still coming up, I thought, I thought, I thought you were over this. I thought you forgave already. Because we think forgiveness equals reconciliation, and it doesn't. We said it over and over again. Forgiveness is simply this. I release my right for revenge against you. I will not intentionally look for ways to injure you back even though you've injured me. Even if I feel like, the, even in the, in the laws of conventional wisdom, I have every legitimate right to bring injury, I will release my right for revenge against you. What that doesn't mean, though, is, and I will also allow myself and allow you to come back into an intimate space wherein you can cause the same damage against me. That's never the call. Sadly, within church circles, we have conflated the two. We have made the two synonymous. Well, if you forgive somebody, then how could you possibly not be in the same type of relationship you were in before? I thought you forgave them. Because God cares that we actually forget about what it looks like on the surface. He cares about genuine, reconciled connection between us. In the same way that God doesn't want you to just perform for him on a Sunday while being estranged from him on Monday. He doesn't want you to just sing the right words, say the right things, preach the right sermon when your heart is far from him. The same way he wants our hearts, he wants us to desire each other's hearts. He wants us to be properly reconciled. So how do we then face painful people? Do we just ignore them? Do we just, I just can't talk to this person. If I have to see that family member that's hurt me at the family reunion, I'm just going to make sure I sit at that table and stay there. Or do I, you know, what we can do now on social media is I'm never really going to try to talk to that person directly, but I'll subtweet them. Or I'll send out Facebook. Do you ever see people who do what they call vague booking? Like they'll put a vague message on Facebook because it's really for somebody and they hope that somehow that person sees it because they know it's for them. They won't do it directly. Am I the only person that's seen this? People will really do this, right? They'll come out there and be like, you know, uh, somebody will easily put a, a Facebook post up like, it's just really sad when people don't know how to listen to people giving wisdom. <laughs> and it's probably an argument you had with somebody yesterday and you throw it out there. That's not what it means to properly be reconciled. So how do we do it? The story that we're looking at right now, we've been in, in, in this part of Genesis now for a minute, and we've been looking at the life of Joseph. If there's anybody who knows what it is to be hurt by, by people that are close to them, it's Joseph. 
If there's anybody who knows what it is to be hurt by people who are your blood relatives, your closest relatives, it would be Joseph. And here Joseph has already been through, he's been through so much as a young teenage boy, basically tricked by his brothers, sold into slavery by his brothers. He was kind of the delighted one. He was the one that was shown the favoritism. He probably wasn't as self-aware as one might expect him to be. And he, it, some of the things looked like he was kind of flexing on his brothers, trying to tell them, hey, I had this dream that you guys are going to bow before me one day. And he didn't realize that they weren't going to feel that very well. And, and so he gets, he gets thrown and he gets sent off into slavery, he gets sold. And then he goes and gets sent off to Egypt and he gains favor and he starts getting this increased position. And then he gets taken advantage of by Potiphar's wife, gets a false accusation, gets thrown in prison. All of this has happened. Scripture tells us all of this has happened by the time his brothers come back on the scene. It's been about 20 years. So he goes from being a teenager to probably somebody in his mid-30s that went from the low of the low right? Held in that pit his brothers threw him in before they sold him. The lowest of the low to the highest of the high, working for Potiphar in this incredible position, having all of this adulation and people respecting him to being thrown down into prison. There he is in prison. And again, you're thinking through all these things. Why is this happening to me? All these people that I trusted keep letting me down. If you've ever been in that situation like I have, it can make you a person, if you're like me, it can make it very difficult to legitimately trust people. It can make it very difficult to to allow people back into closed spaces again because you're like, you know, I I hear you, I see that you pat me on, on my back, but I feel like you're looking for soft spots to stab me in, so I can't even accept your compliments. You see, when you've been in a situation where you're hurt by people that are close, it can become very difficult to trust again. So what do we do? Because it can't just be, let me close myself off and, and, and numb myself so that I can never have legitimate, intimate connection with people again. That can't be what it is because that's not what it is to be restored back to the original blueprint of what it means to be rightly related to each other. So what do we do? How do we deal with it? You think about uh, Joseph's story as we look at this, and we're going to go through these next two chapters, but we're going to walk through them kind of in an oversight way and highlight a few things. You think about this happening over a period of 20 years, 20 years, 20 years, Joseph's going through this. What might you be thinking for 20 years after your siblings have just sold you out? A lot can happen in 20 years. In 20 years, you you can get married and start a family. In 20 years, you can, you can move on in certain areas of your life. In 20 years, you can build an empire. You can build a business. You can become wealthy. You can be on the top of the world. But here's one thing you can never do in any amount of time. You can never erase a guilty conscience. Think about the brothers in this situation. 20 years, these brothers know what they did. They sold their younger brother in slavery. And they lied to their father and told him he was killed by wolves. 20 years they've lived with this lie. This is a, another kind of side point here, but when you think about how easy it is for us to even lie to ourselves, if we've ever done any kind of injury and we'll say, I have a, I have a clear conscience on the matter, even though we haven't reconciled it properly, you realize that, that that guilty conscience is still in there. You may have seared it, but the truth of the matter is I've never made this right. 
Whenever people say, I think it was Mark Twain who said that people, anyone who says that they have a clear conscience just has a bad memory. Because if you truly do have it, the only way you clear it is actually by doing the hard work of doing the reconciling. And so you, it's not enough to just be like, this is why we always say this and I hate the phrase and I try to get us out of saying it. It is not a litmus test for whether it's of God just because you have peace about it. It's not a litmus test that it's of God. It could be. Peace is definitely a part of what it means. It's one of the fruit of the spirit. It's something there. But it doesn't. We do that to legitimize really bad decision making. You know, I didn't, I didn't really talk to them, but I have peace about it. I didn't really work to reconcile that thing, but I have peace about it. You know who actually disobeyed God and had peace about it? Jonah. He went to sleep in the middle of a storm. You can sleep in the storm that your own making and say, I have peace about it and be in sin. It is not enough to be peaceful about what you feel. It's not enough for you to be at peace with your decision making. The question is, do I have the heart of God on this versus my own peace? So, so this is where we're stuck with this idea of this guilty conscience that these brothers have had for 20 years. And Joseph is having to deal with how he has to work through this stuff emotionally for 20 years. This conscience, this moral barometer of the heart that senses when we've done wrong. Does it matter? Religion, education, geography, ethnic origin. If you're, if you're human, there's some degree of conscience there. Now we can ignore it, convince ourselves that uh, we're, we're okay, but, it's, but it's, still, it's still there. So when, you look, when we look at this story of, of Joseph and you look at this part, there's some, there's some really big picture, big ticket items here that we can't miss. So we can't go through all two chapters in, in full the way I'd love to. But what we can do is look at a few things that I feel like we really need to pay close attention to. First thing I wonder about is this. What are Joseph's brothers feeling now? What are they feeling now? Are they repentant at this point? You know, we, we spent, when we talk about relationships and we talk about reconciling, this is what we say. That what the scriptures show us is it's not enough to just say, I'm sorry for hurting you, right? We've also pointed out it's not enough to just say, uh, to do the fake apology. Well, if that hurt you, I'm sorry. If that makes you upset, I'm sorry. If that, if that offended you, I'm sorry. That's not a real apology, right? It's almost saying, I'm really sorry for your sensitivity level. It's not actually saying, I'm genuinely sorry for the injury I've caused. This is how I insulate myself from having to take real accountability. So the real problem is how you took it. It's not an apology either, right? So that definitely isn't reconciliation. So what is it, for, for, for Joseph's brothers, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that they were actually feeling during this time? Was there a sense of brokenness over 20 years? Was there a sense of, I can't, can't believe what we did to our brother? Was there this lingering guilt? Anytime we're like, well, you know, time heals all wounds. No, sometimes time just allows the wounds to fester, to get more infected, to become more calcified. And we end up just having this deep area of bitterness, but we have peace about the time that it took and we feel like we're okay. This is where maybe who knows where Joseph is? Who knows where the brothers are? But there are some things that give us, they give us away. When I look at the first few verses, just walking through it, Jacob learned that uh, there was grain in Egypt. And he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on. I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us that we will live and not die. First of all, when you look at how Jacob is talking to his sons now, doesn't it feel a little cold, a little disconnected? 
I mean, there's a famine going on. People all over the area, are lo- they don't have food. People are dying. People are hungry. Everybody's struggling. And then he looks at his sons and goes, why are y'all just looking at each other? You would think like it would almost be compassionate. Like, hey, I know you guys are hungry. I'm hungry too. He might just be hangry here. I don't know. But he just kind of throws it out. I know that you, I know that, you, know, you, you would think he would almost say, hey, we're all struggling. We're all going through this together. No, he's, he's, he's a little bit disconnected. He's a little bit cold towards his sons. And so he sends, uh, and I, we'll get to that in a minute, and he sends 10 of Joseph's brothers, went down to buy grain from Egypt. And Jacob didn't send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. Why did he think that? Why would Jacob all of a sudden not send his youngest son, Benjamin? Who is this youngest son? Well, he's one of the only two sons he had with the wife that he loved, right? This is Joseph's full baby brother. Joseph doesn't even know he has another baby brother because Joseph was the baby brother when he was sold off 20 years prior. So now you've got this little boy, Benjamin, that's there, and Jacob decides, I'm sending you guys over to go buy some food from Egypt, right? go out to Egypt and buy food there, which, by the way, the only reason why, of course, we, did, we skipped over a couple chapters, the only reason why that's even happening, the reason why they have stores of food is simply because of the very brother that they sold into slavery who has now been elevated to a position where, where because of the dreams that he had sent from God, they now have those stores available for everyone in Egypt to have food. Doesn't even know that. It's interesting when we always talk about all things work together for the good, it never says all things are good, but all things work together for the good, which is really hard because ultimately a lot of times we can pray. It's not, Lord, I'm praying for everything to be good in my life. And if that's your prayer, I promise you the answer will be no. But the answer is, Lord, or the question is, Lord, help me see, give me great, maybe not always happiness, but joy, abiding joy, that what it is that's happening will, br- will actually bring about some good. I don't know where, I don't know how, I might not even know right now, it may take 20 years, it may be on the other side of eternity, but I'm begging, I'm praying, impress upon me this truth that this somehow is working for my good. The other thing that's interesting too with Joseph is Joseph was a dreamer. We know that. And he had these incredible dreams from God. But understand that many of the dreams that he got weren't fully explained and he didn't know everything that would happen later. You know what he never dreamed? That he'd be in prison. You know what he never dreamed? That he'd ever get a false allegation against him by one of the most powerful women in in, in the known world. So it's interesting when you see these, you know, they used to make jokes about uh, certain people when they would have these psychic hotline numbers in the 90s. It was a really, I think I brought this up before, it was a popular actor that would get up there and, and, and you know, he's, he's, his name was Billy D. Williams. There's only a few people here to probably know who he is. But he'd get up there and he'd have these big psychic hotline things and all this stuff. Then he got in trouble and got in trouble with the law and everybody's like, I bet he didn't see that coming, did he? Because that stuff is partial. <laughs> That stuff, you can get a little piece, but you're not going to get the whole picture. That's the reason why, even if, even if we're not saying that we don't believe God works in dreams, but dreams still are always in subjection to the scriptures. Anytime you have a vision or a feeling or whatever, make sure that it's in line with what God's already said, because he's not in the business of contradicting himself. So now here's all these dreams that's happened. All these things have worked out somehow. The brothers have no idea that the brother they sold out is the one that's saving them. They have no idea that the one that was rejected is the one that's actually getting ready to receive them. They don't, they don't know that. If anything, he, by now they could assume he's dead. He's been in slavery and it's been 20 years. 
the, the, the lifespan of a lot of those slaves weren't that long. So he easily could have been worked to the bone by then. So, so now here they are. They're, they're getting ready to go. They're getting ready to go on this trip. They're, having to, they're, they're going to take all their brothers except for Benjamin. Here's what I think. And this is what we start seeing when you look at the language of Jacob here. Jacob is probably not fully believing and probably hasn't believed the story that these boys had told him about what happened to his son before. On some level, he doesn't have all the facts. He just knows that here's what he remembers. He remembers the enmity that was in between those brothers all that time. He remembers the fact that they always had something against Joseph. And all of a sudden, they come back with a bloody jacket. And he's never gotten any other answers. This young boy that he loved, he's never gotten any other answers. And it's been sitting in him for 20 years to the point where it's like, I ain't got nothing to say. Just go bring some food back. And no, you're not taking your younger brother. Here's what it also says. It also says that there really hasn't been any genuine repentance from these young, from these brothers either. Because had, it ha- had that had happened, had they just broke down and went, Dad, we have to tell, we have to break, we have to tell the truth. We got to show you, tell you the whole story. Here's what happened. Here's what we did because of our own sin, because of our own pride. We are acknowledging not just the behavior, but the broken sinful heart position, uh, the, 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 the sinful heart posture that allowed for said behavior to happen. You realize when you are messing, if you, I don't care if it's you or a person that you are in relationship with, when a person can identify not just the bad behavior that's been painful, but the, but the underlying sinful heart posture that allowed for that behavior to happen, that's when you start to feel safe with someone. Because now they're getting down to the root, the sin under the sin. If all I do is keep trying to give you behavior modification talks, hey, if you just change the way you do this, maybe it'll be better. If you just change the way you talk about this, maybe that'll be better. As opposed to What's at the root? What on a deep heart level allows for this to happen? When you know what the genuine heart condition is, now you know the work that needs to get done. You see, because if all I do is keep trying to modify your behavior along the way, then, then the heart posture that's there, it'll just manifest in a new behavior. And now I got to chase behavior. Now you got to chase my behavior. So you would think that in some ways, if real repentance had happened, again, this is why repentance isn't just, I said I was sorry. Or I didn't do that thing again anymore. If, if real repentance had happened, they would have said, Dad, here's the, real, here's the real truth. We did this, this, and that. We've been struggling with this pride thing for a really long time. We've been really hurt about the ways that you've shown favoritism to him as well. But it's no excuse, because here's kind of the sinful responses that we've had as a result. And we know this is what we did. Here's who we sold them to. We will sell whatever we have out here. The work that we've done, we'll collect our money to go try to buy them back. Maybe that could have happened, right? But see, those things haven't happened. Because he still, he just knows something happened and I'm not trusting you with my other little boy anymore. That's it. Can you imagine, even for him, feeling kind of the pain that he probably feels knowing or suspecting my son did this to my youngest son. Just imagine what he's probably feeling. So they, they take off and they go and they're, and they're getting ready to go to, to Egypt. And here's when it gets really interesting because as they go, they have, they have no idea what they're getting ready to see. And when they get there, they get there to go buy food. And as they get into Egypt, you see what happens. It says his brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground, which was common practice when you were in front of a dignitary. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them right away. But he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. 
Where did you come from? From the land of Canaan to buy food, they replied. And even though Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now, there's some real basic to the point reasons why they may not have. He now was living as an Egyptian, so he has the requisite makeup and clothing and garb and all of that. So it's, it's very possible. It's been 20 years. If you see a teenager that's 13, 14 years old and see them at 34, they don't always look the same. So they easily could have been looking at him and going, we don't know really, he's got all this makeup on, he's one of those big guys. They don't know anything else, he's just a governor. But he knows who they are. And he remembered his dreams about them and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the weakness of the land. Now, question, is Joseph just being really, really bitter? Is he being angry? Is he trying to exact revenge to his brothers right now? It's easy to feel that way. It's easy to be like, man, that's just harsh. Couldn't he at that moment have said, hey, guys, pull it off. It's me. I know what happened last time, but let's let bygones be bygones. I've got a great, uh, got a great cover and got a great dish set up. We've got a great smorgasbord of food. Let's go have a good time. He could have done all of that, right? But he doesn't. Instead, he takes this different approach. What you see and what a lot of commentators, a lot of theologians will bring up and several Hebrew theologians will bring up is, is the fact that here, Joseph is not just trying to punish. He's really trying to figure out where their hearts are now. He actually is trying to get to the sin underneath the sin. He, this isn't just like, oh, you know, I want to punish you, punish you, punish you until I'm satisfied. It's more like I need to be able to test that, that what was present in your heart before is not present now. And, he's pro and here's the other thing. This is the reason why he starts to ask some of these questions like, where do you come from? And do you have siblings? And what siblings, when they start talking about who they are and where they come from and how many brothers they have, a lot of people think that's because when he accuses them as being spies, they are giving their entire family tree and to say, no, 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 we're not spies. We're all brothers because nobody would send almost their entire family to be spies because you don't want to lose some of them. So they're really trying to almost say, no, 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 you don't understand. We're not spies. We're really, we're really uh, from a family and, and it's 10 and here's the brothers and we used to have one and he died. But we have a younger brother at home. As soon as he heard that, he went, so that means there's another one that could suffer the same fate I did. There's somebody else. If your heart posture is still the same, this is what we don't seem to understand. If you have an issue, a deep sin issue, and you hurt a person over here, whether it's in dating relationships, family, friends, work, whatever, if you don't check those things well, if those things don't get rooted out, you will most assuredly do that elsewhere. You will. If that sin doesn't get rooted out, it will manifest itself elsewhere. So, so for some of you, for some of us, you've probably heard the same critiques amongst different relationships you've been around or been in. And, just, and, and in your mind, you're like, people just never understand me. People just always misunderstand what I'm saying. It can't be everybody else all the time. It can't. And so if you're hearing a recurring critique about a certain character issue, not just from the same person, but around people that you start to build some relationships with, and they notice these same things over and over again, pay attention because it's very likely that you could cause the same type of damage everywhere you go. Joseph gets this. He's, he's pretty wise by now. He's been doing a lot. And so he's looking and he's going, wait a minute, you mean to tell me y'all, there's another younger brother? And if, and if he's loved the way I was loved by my father, 
and you guys haven't changed the way you look upon those things, then he's probably in the same kind of danger I was 20 years ago. So he's putting these tests forward. Now, if we just make it real right now, when you are in a situation where you are hurt, taken advantage of, injured in any way, this is why it's important. It is not necessarily, it's not necessarily the role of, of, of the church to force you into just quickly being back in relationship with the person. Sometimes that'll be pushed. Well, listen, y'all just you apologize, make up, be around. But wait a minute. No, if this person has hurt and injured me, I need to ensure that all the things that are there that allow for them to injure me, that those things are dealt with. Otherwise, I'm just going to kind you don't, nobody calls us to be a martyr for Jesus when it comes to relationships. Ever. If anything, when you, it's one thing to be, I'm being martyred for Jesus' sake. I'm holding to the claims of Christ and governments are coming down on me or other people. That's something different. But when it comes down to this person is a toxic person who is, is committed to not doing anything about said toxicity, is it my job then as a good Christian to stay there and continually being beaten in those environments? No. So if I'm going to stay in relationship with them, what I need to do is to be able to say whatever it is, questions, uh, uh, figuring out, uh, testing, proving, I need to know for sure that you're safe. I need to know for sure that all of those deep things, those relational things that can cause harm or injury, I need to know that I'm safe. And I need to know that others are safe. See, Joseph right now is not worried about his safety anymore. He's the second most powerful man in Egypt. But now, because Joseph has, is showing and demonstrating the heart of God, he's thinking more about, are others safe around you guys? And here's where Joseph may not even be thinking about this, but we see this in the grand scheme of who God is. We also know that these are the very, these men, these, these men that are there, they refer to as the patriarchs. These are going to be the patriarchs of the faith. These are going to be the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. We don't, often don't think about just how messed up and wicked the majority of these patriarchs actually were. And so in order for them to be able to, what are they supposed to do? Be able to embody and bear the very image of the God that saved them, the, the God that rescued them. And they are supposed to bear that image throughout the world. They're supposed to be able to share what the kingdom of God looks like, communicate the message of God throughout all the world. How are they going to do that when all of these heart issues are completely messed up? One thing that's interesting when you look at these brothers and what they're doing they're going through something, right? They're going through this big famine. Everybody's going through the famine in the area. But it's interesting how God will take you through one thing to deliver you from something else. So you can, he'll take you through something that's incredibly difficult in and of itself. And this thing is really a tool to deliver you from that thing. This thing is the thing you see with your eyes. That thing is the thing that happens on a deep heart level that you might be committed to ignoring. So now they don't even know what they're being delivered from yet. They think they're just being delivered from hunger. They're actually being delivered from themselves. Yes. So they get there and they see this, this, this powerful guy and Joseph starts testing him. He starts asking them, okay, so where'd you come from? You're spies. You must be coming to, 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 to see the weakness of the land. No, we only came to buy food. We're sons of one man. We're honest. You're servants, not spies. No, you've come to see the weakness of the land. No, we're your servants. Your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. Joseph said to them, I have spoken. You are spies. This is how you'll be tested. 
As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one from among you to get your brother. The rest of you will be in prison so that your words can be tested to see if they are true. If they're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. So Joseph imprisoned them together for three days. And you see on the third day, he, he changes the game up again. He says, I fear God. Do this and you will live. If you're honest, let one of you be confined to the guardhouse while the rest of you go. Take grain to relieve the hunger of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me. So now he's like, okay, I'll tell you what. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let all of you go, but you have to leave one brother here. And he's going to stay in prison until you bring me the youngest brother that you describe. Because now he's going, I also know that these brothers are not only capable of, of harming their, their loved ones and their, and their relatives, they're also capable of lying and making up any story they can. So either A, they're lying to me now, or B, they're, 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 they might be lying to uh, their father, and, and depending on what they might do with them, he might be really worried about the safety of this young boy. Either way, he's testing them. I think sometimes, especially if we've been the offender, we can feel like, why are you asking me these questions? I said I was sorry already. Why, why are you requiring me to, to demonstrate to you that these things are still true? I already said I was sorry. See, that's the problem. You're bitter. You don't get over things fast enough. No, y'all, when we're doing reconciliation, this is, this is actually a part of what it means to reconcile. If you're not willing to do the work of reconciling, then of course you want cheap reconciliation. Of course I just want my words to be enough. Of course I want my empty promises to be enough. When we, every time we talk about repentance, we always go back to 2 Corinthians 7. I tell everybody, there's no better place in the Bible to really see a specific layout of what repentance is. When you look at 2 Corinthians 7, I didn't intend to, but I think we need to, because what you see being demonstrated by these brothers here, you're starting to see, is indeed what you see in 2 Corinthians 7. When you look at, when you look at chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, here's what you see. And if you're new with us, you, we, we went through a whole series on, on 1 Corinthians, and one of the things that's interesting about that letter is that Paul takes all of 1 Corinthians, this first letter to the Corinthian church in Greece, 1 Corinthians, he writes this letter to them. This letter apparently is a response to a letter they wrote him. We don't have that letter. All we know is that in the letter, they were writing all these things that were messed up in their church. All these messed up things. They, they were struggling with, with, with issues of communion. People were getting drunk off the wine. They were struggling with issues of marriage. They had all kinds of sexual issues that were happening. We had a situation where a man was sleeping with his father's wife, and the church was not having any type of discipleship to, to handle this. There was no real correction. All these kinds of issues. Issues of the way they viewed the resurrection, issues of how they viewed Jesus, how they viewed marriage, all of this. So Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians. It's, I've said it often, probably the least encouraging of all the letters because he just lights them up the whole time. Y'all wrong about this, y'all wrong about that, y'all wrong about this. Then he encourages them with the truth of the gospel, says return back to, but it is loving to point out error, right? It actually is loving. When people are like, I need words of love, that really just means I need words of approval, but God's not gonna approve everything we do. So he writes this letter back to them. They apparently wrote him a letter back. We don't have that either. All we know is what he wrote back to them in 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he refers back to the letter he wrote them. And here's what he says. In verse 8, he says, he says um, even if I grieved you with my letter, 
I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. Then he describes what this kind of grief looks like. See, this is when we start getting into the anatomy of a real repentant heart and not just a fake apology. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Then he digs deeper. Consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. Okay, listen to these attributes. For all of us in here who feel, who feel like, you know, that person feels like I really haven't demonstrated enough or I haven't really shown that I'm sorry. Look at this list and see if this applies to you. What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What deep longing. What zeal. What justice. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. Look at those words. When you are genuinely trying to repent when you're genuinely trying to seek out genuine reconciliation, you know what you never say? Oh, I'm so tired of talking about this. Because see, if you're zealous about something, then you're indefatigable. I'm so zealous. Put it like this. If you knew that there was only one ticket to your favorite concert you were going to go to, you would be incredibly zealous about getting that ticket. If they were like, I don't care, pick whoever your favorite artist is that's like the most rare you can never get. And they were like, there's one way you can get this ticket. You would zealously come up with whatever plan. You'd be very strategic. You'd find out what. If you got to stand in line for, how people do this now for certain things. People stand in line for 24 to 48 hours. You come up with a plan. Okay, uh, loved ones, bring me food. If I have to go to the bathroom, stand in line for me. We'll come up with ways to make it happen. Why? Because we're zealous. That's how zealous we're supposed to be about reconciliation. That's how zealous we're supposed to be about actually making right what we have broken. There is no I'm too tired to reconcile with you right now. There is no I'm so tired of talking about this or hearing about this pain again. There's none of that. Because ultimately what, what Paul is saying is that when you have genuine, that zeal, when you actually have godly grief versus just worldly grief. You know what worldly grief is? I'm so exhausted with these consequences. I'm so tired of what this is going to mean for me because I care about how this is going to affect me. But godly grief is going, I care so much about grieving the heart of God that I can't help but care about how it grieves your heart. And because I care so much about that, I don't care what I have to do. I don't care how it makes me look. I don't care how it makes me. I'm going to do whatever I have to do in order to earn your trust again, in order to right what it is that I've done wrong. This is the heart that Joseph is seeking out in his brothers. How repentant. Has there been a genuine, not behavior modification, but a genuine heart transformation here? Because if they just modified their behavior because they're hungry, they're going to get full eventually, and they'll get back to doing what they've always done. See, when we're in relationships with others and we're dealing with people who have hurt us, we that's the question. The issue isn't just... Have you just been able to get over it? The issue is, have the, has, the, has the injuring party satisfactorily demonstrated that they truly have, have been mourning their own sin in such a way that genuine heart change is happening? Because if there's heart change, then now we have to now deal with our side of it and go, okay, 
I, I can sense this sense of, rec- I can walk into reconciliation again with this person. We might have to, it might look different and there's no specific way to do this all the time, but there might be a way that we can walk into doing this together. So that's what Joseph's doing. Joseph is bringing this test. He's bringing this to the forefront. He's trying to see where their hearts are. And as he walks through this, you start seeing throughout the rest of the chapter, these tests that happen. He sends them home. He sends uh, all the brothers except for one. And so they, he says, bring your youngest brother to me so that your words can be confirmed. Then you won't die. And they consented to this. And they said to each other, listen to their words. Obviously, we're being punished for what we did to our brother. So it's been on their mind. They remember. They know what they did. And they're kind of dealing with it in the sense of like, I mean, this was the same way for anybody in those times. When things happened, it was almost this sense of like, everything was karmic in their mind, right? And there's a, little, there's a slight difference there, right, between kind of reaping and sowing in God's economy. Because in their mind, they're like, man, clearly, uh, at some point, this was going to catch up with us. And it's catching up with us now. Something is happening. Something, the other shoe's getting ready to drop. We're getting ready to get taken out because of what we did to our brother. And so they say this, this is why this trouble has come to us. And then you hear Reuben. And remember chapters before, Reuben actually didn't want his brother to be sold off. He had had plans to come back to the pit and get him, but he'd already been sold. And Reuben said, didn't I tell you not to harm the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. Reuben's the oldest. He feels this sense of responsibility. He feels a lot of shame. Reuben is, is the only one, really, you see start to speak up first, right? They didn't realize that Joseph understood them. Because, again, here's the other thing Joseph's doing. Joseph's only speaking Egyptian around them. So, so Joseph's not speaking Hebrew. They don't know. He's just an Egyptian as far as they can tell. But Joseph is hearing everything they're saying. And so he hears them trying to make sense of these things. And it's great. In many ways, y'all, this is the reason what we're seeing right now is they're, they're forced to have to be transparent in their language. They can't hide their language from them. There's a sense in which transparency in the right way is the only way to bring about genuine reconciliation, laying our hearts bare. You know what, you know what reconciliation does? See, you can confess something, but you know, there are some people that will only confess as much as you already know. I'll only tell you what you already know. But what genuine reconciliation does is, yes, I know you know A, B, and C, but I'm going to also share D, E, and F. Because I want to demonstrate just how much I care about us reconciling right. I don't want to give you any further reason to have any other doubt about my commitment to fixing this. And so, so in, their, in, in this case, they, they don't know it, but they're having to just share everything uh, without meaning to because they have to speak their language. It's the only language they know. It's the only language they know. So he's speaking, he's speaking through an interpreter, and, and they're hearing that, and they're like, all right, he can't really hear us, y'all. You know what this is. This is what we did to Joseph way back in the day. God is getting us. God is getting ready to bring swift retribution for what we did. And what you see next, they didn't realize Joseph understood them. Since there was an interpreter between them, he turned away from them, and he wept. You see Joseph being moved. He's moved because... They remember him. They actually remember what they did. There's something there that's starting to hit them. Starting. We're starting to see something prick them. They're starting to go, oh my goodness. This, may be, this is probably tied to the horrible thing we did to our brother. 
And whenever, sometimes, I don't know, when I've ever been hurt by someone and they begin to talk about and owning and, and, and really, uh, it, there's something about someone verbalizing your pain back to you that creates something emotional. There's something about, we've said this before, when you begin to empathize with a person, right? True empathy is when you begin to relive their pain in order to relieve their pain. When you can say, you know what, I know this, I did this and this and this and that, and I know what this started to do to you. And I know that when I did this, this is how you felt. And I know that when I did this, this is what you thought. I know when I did this, this is what you started to fear. I know when I did this, these are the lies you started believing about yourself. I know when I did this, these are the things you started to do to defend yourself. I know that I'm responsible for that. Guess what? You are now building real intimacy when that happens. You're actually taking down the walls of pretension, and people are actually able to go, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm being seen. I'm being heard. I'm actually being known right now. I, this person is verbalizing the very pain that's there, and they're, they're taking ownership of that. And so Joseph gets moved to the point of tears. They remember. They know what they did, and so they, they get back home. And as they, they're, they're, they're heading back, uh, it tells us that um, he took Simeon, which some people think makes sense because Simeon was the second oldest. And so we don't know for sure, but here's something interesting. He kept Simeon. We realized that Simeon also was uh, one of the, 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 the guys that did some other bad stuff earlier, right? Remember what happened? After what happened with uh, Tamar, they, I mean, not Tamar, after what happened with Dinah, they run into Shechem, and it was Levi and Simeon who went in and started killing everybody in the city. And Jacob was upset. We talked a lot about what that meant, even for women. So, so for whatever reason, he keeps Simeon. Simeon's being held for three days. And they've got to go back to their dad and say, Dad, we need to take Benjamin. Now, again, if you're Jacob, you've already been hurt by your sons. You now have to figure out, do I trust their words? Because I, I really don't trust their words anymore. I don't even really know what happened to my son. It's been 20 years, and I don't feel like I've gotten the truth out of them. And yet I'm, I'm stuck now because the ruler of the land is saying they need to see my son. And either they're lying. if they're lying, then my son's going to be dead. But if they're not lying, then my other son's going to be dead. What do I do? So they come home, and they start to, they, you know, they're thinking. The other thing they see is that all of a sudden, the money that they brought with them to pay for the food has been returned in their bags. This incredible act of mercy has just occurred. Because so, they don't know what's happening. At first they're thinking, we're getting punished, we're getting punished. And even in the midst of them thinking they're going to be punished, knowing they should be punished, they still get a blessing. Now that, if that doesn't hit you on some kind of level, the times when we know, I know I've been guilty, I know I deserve real punishment, and all of a sudden, the thing that I need that I don't have the money to pay for, it's been paid for, and on top of that, there's something extra? So now they, they, they don't know what to make of it because in their mind, they're going, well, this must be some kind of trick because I'm still waiting for swift retribution to come down. But anyhow, they get home and they go to their father and they tell their father what happened. And, and, and he's, uh, he, he's, they, they're, they're constantly kind of looking and feeling like, how do we tell dad this? What do we say? They're emptying their sacks and they're seeing what happened. And as they empty it, see verse 38, their father, Jacob said to them, it's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone. Now Simeon is gone. Now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Now, Jacob is probably in his own kind of feelings right now because, you know, J Jacob is, 
Jacob already came from a situation where he was the favorite son and he was kind of spoiled and we see that. And so he really is focusing too a lot on how it's making him feel, but, but he's still true. He's going, man, I lost one son. I got Simeon in jail. And now you want to take my youngest, Benjamin, as well. And then Reuben showing that first sign. Here's a sign of real repentance. You can, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring him back to you. Put him in my care. I will. Now he knows good and well that his dad is not going to kill his grandkids. He, he knows that. Sometimes when you're just trying to show that you're truly repentant, you might make an outrageous thing. You're just like, I just want to show you whatever I can. Like my two sons, there's no way that he's really expecting his two sons to really be killed by his father. But he's just trying to demonstrate, I genuinely, dad, I, I realize I'm the oldest and I should have known better and I should have done better. And so I'm willing to lay everything I have on the line to, de to demonstrate I'm going to keep him safe. And Jacob said, my son will not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If anything happens to him on your journey, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. And so over time, this famine gets worse. It's severe. They had used up all the grain. So what's really interesting is they've been spinning their wheels, not really knowing what to do. They don't know exactly how much time, but I mean, Simeon is still in prison, just kind of chilling. This whole time, they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm gonna... And Simeon is just sitting there. They don't, they don't have email. He, he couldn't Skype and say, we're finding a way to get you out. Dad's working on it. He's just, he's just in prison. The type of prison where he's with other people who are waiting on death row. The type of prison that Joseph had been in. Remember when Joseph, if you were, we, we didn't talk about this, but Joseph, before when he was in prison, he's meeting people. And, and, and all of a sudden, he's ha they're having... Uh, dreams and they don't understand why they're having the dreams and he's able to interpret the dreams and they're like, he's like, hey, listen, I know what your dream means. That dream that you had, here's what it means. It means that eventually uh, the king, the ruler of Egypt is going to raise your head up and exalt you and forgive you. And the guy was like, wow, that's amazing. And the second guy's like, man, you're giving out good news. Me, 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 me. What about my dream? What about? He's like, yeah, so the king is going to raise your head and cut it off. Be careful when you say you want a word from the Lord. For whatever reason, we always think that getting a word from God is always a positive one. And we're convinced it can't be from God if it's something else. <laughs> but ultimately, Joseph was just saying, I, don't kill the messenger. This is what this dream really means. And guess what? It happened exactly as he said. So, so these dreams have been coming. These dreams he's known, and he's known that that's how God works with him. These dreams are the reasons why he was bought, brought before uh, uh, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was able to then say, okay, I've heard you're the dreamer. Explain to me my dreams, and he did, and that's the reason why he's able to help with this famine. And so this famine gets worse. They've used up all the grain. They've eaten all their food. And now the father is like, well, just go back and get some more food. Get a little bit more. You see, the at some point, the father has just given up on ever getting Simeon back. It almost seems like he doesn't even care. Like, he's so angry at what they were a part of before, he's not even moved to find a way to get Simeon back at this point. Whether it's right, wrong, or whatever, we're not even talking about that. Just, you realize where he is in a heart position now. So frustrated and anger. See, this is what happens when you have a family history of not dealing with real problems. You begin to, all of a sudden, if we don't deal and reconcile well, we just start getting harder and harder and more cold-hearted toward each other. And then eventually, there's just not a lot of deep love there anymore. There's not even a desire for like deep flourishing for each other anymore because there's never really been a culture 
of truly reconciling well. I tell this to aspiring married couples all the time. It's really important that you're aware of not only your brokenness, but what rhythms of repentance you both practice. If you don't know how your spouse repents well, you are not ready. Or if you're a potential spouse, you are in no way ready to be married. If you don't know how you repent well, you are in no position to be married. And really, if you're going to have any kind of real close relationship with someone, all those things need to be known before you ever go into anything deeper with anybody. So, so now you're seeing this, this thing that starts to happen. They've been so dis, uh, uh, dis, uh, separated emotionally from each other. And that can happen. Eventually, married couples can turn to this. You're just roommates. Families are just living under the same roof, but there's no deep, real love and concern for mutual flourishing. It's just kind of like, I, I have to tolerate your existence because I don't have the money to do anything else. And this is where you can see that's where they are because Simeon's in prison. And he's kind of like, all right, we're hungry again. See if you can go get a little bit more food. And Judah said to him, the man warned us, you won't see me again unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go. For the man said to us, you will not see me again unless your brother is with you. Why have you caused me so much trouble? Israel, Jacob asked. Why did you tell the man that you had another brother? Why did you even bring that up? We could have been out of this mess if you just didn't say anything about it. And they answered, the man kept asking about us and our family. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we answered him accordingly. How could we know that he would say, bring your brother here? Then Judah said to his father Israel, send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die. Neither we nor you nor our dependents. I will be responsible for him. You can hold me personally accountable. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will be guilty before you forever. If we had not delayed, we could have come back twice by now. Something is starting to change in these men. Something's starting to change in these brothers. See, before it was like, we are willing to sell our brother out, right, at his own personal expense so that we can gain something. Now they're going, we're willing to lose anything just so we can gain our brother back. See, that's what reconciliation looks like. I'm willing to give up my pride. I'm willing to give up being right in the argument. I'm willing to give up whatever position I feel like I have in order to gain you. That's it. I just want to gain you. Whatever I have to do to gain your heart back, I'm willing to do. And so now you see Judah, who is finally stepping up and saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm willing to lay myself on the line. I will be accountable. And Israel said, if it must be so, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your packs. Take them down to the man as, uh, as a gift. A little balsam, a little honey, aromatic gum, resin, pistachios, almonds. Take twice as much silver as, uh, with you. Return the silver that was returned to you in the top of your bags. Ultimately, because you see it, he's almost going, I still don't know what that silver was about. They still have it. They haven't even spent the silver because they're really scared because they're like, maybe that was a trick still. So they're holding on to this extra gift and they're going, because they're probably going to try to pull something on this later. And so he says, pack twice that amount because you're, you're going to pay for the grain that we got before and you're going to pay for this new grain that we're getting ready to get. So they do. Pack all that stuff up. They head back. He says, may God Almighty cause the man to be merciful to you so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin to you. As for me, if I'm deprived of my sons, then I'm deprived. So they took the gift, the double, double the amount of silver, and they took Benjamin, and they went down to Egypt, and he stood before Joseph. 
And can you just imagine what Joseph is thinking? Like, this is the brother that looks a lot like me. I mean, we're all brothers and we have little things because we all have the same dad, but, but man, this is the one. We both have the same mom and dad. Like, I'm being reminded of my mother when I see this. Just, there's a human element to this. He's, he's, he's staring at his brother he didn't even know existed. And he's safe for now. And the brothers seem to be talking about this younger brother in ways they never talked about Joseph. He's got to be moved. You know, there, there could be, some people have wondered, they've, movies have taken some artistic license and kind of made them almost jealous at times. You don't really see that here. You just see him just being in this place of, could it be possible that God is truly melting their hearts? Could it be possible that people who have done heinous things, people who have done unspeakable things, people who have sold you out, could it be possible that God could be turning their heart? You see, for, the pe- for those of us, for all of us, if we've ever been hurt by people that we love or that love us, sometimes we put ourselves in a very dangerous place where we go, they've hurt me in such a way I can't see possibly ever seeing them any other way. And I don't say this lightly. And I don't say this as a, as a way of saying, like, overlook all the damage that's been done. Because there are certain things that can be done that does alter the nature of the relationship. However, in order to be able to see them as repentant, does it look like that they genuinely are broken over what has occurred? That does change how you interact with people. It changes how we interact even with the people we would consider enemies. Because I don't know about you, but if you've ever been a person to cause injury, you for sure want to be able to know, I promise you that I've, that's something that I'm broken about and you don't, I don't want you ever to have to worry that that's going to be true of me again. You want to be on that side. So it's really hard. That's the reason why when we, I pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Forgive us our sins as you do what? I know we all have different versions. Forgive those that sin against us, right? I don't want, I don't, the reason why that's there is because God is constantly reminding us the way that I forgive you is rooted in the way you forgive others. The way that when when I'm reconciling you to me so that you can be a one that goes and practices the ministry of reconciliation. That's your job, to be a reconciler, not just an apologizer, not just someone that can just kind of use the right statement in the moment to say, hey, set your emotions to the side right now. I said I was sorry. We're supposed to be chief repenters, chief reconcilers. And so now you're starting to see this heart start to change. And Joseph starts to get moved. And he sees it. He sees what's happening. And he's like, slaughter an animal. We got to throw a party. We're going to get everybody together. We're going to do something. I don't know what. I mean, it almost seems like he's like going at the right off the cup. Just like, hey. This is happening. My brothers are coming back to me. Something is happening here that I've never seen. I didn't even think it would ever. I never dreamed of this. And the men were afraid because they were taken to Joseph's house. And again, this is what happens when you have that guilty conscience. They know that they've still been guilty. We've been brought here because of the silver that was returned in our bags the first time. They're going to overpower us. They're going to seize us. They're going to make us slaves. They're going to take our donkeys. In many ways, they're going, they're going to treat them like we treated Joseph. He's going to do to us what we did to Joseph. So they went to Joseph's steward or his servant and spoke to him at the doorway of the house. They said, my Lord, we really did come down here the first time to only buy food. Like they're, they're, all, they're just anticipating that they're going to be called out and looked at as thieves and, and liars and deceivers. And they're going, by the way, I know you guys haven't mentioned this, but we didn't do anything wrong. We, we, really, we weren't coming here in a shady way. We, we truly were coming to get food. We don't even know who put that silver in our bags. And the steward said, may you be well, don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your bags. 
I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Simeon came out. The steward uh, brought them in into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, got feed for their donkeys. Since the men had heard that they were going to eat a meal there, they prepared their gift for Joseph's arrival at noon. Think about this. Joseph is, is treating them not like enemies. They know that they deserve real punishment. They know they deserve swift retribution. I read one theologian put it this way. In many ways, when you see a person who has not been gentle, who has not been merciful, who has not been loving, who has just been harsh, mean, typically all we think is the only language we can give them is harshness and meanness back. But what you see in God's economy is that oftentimes the people who are the harshest, the meanest, the coldest hearts, those are the ones that he shows mercy to people like us. Those are the ones to whom he shows mercy because there's something about being shown mercy when you know you don't deserve it. Actually, that's a sign of those who are actually Christians. The sign of a person who's a believer is when they know they deserve genuine punishment, when they know they deserve to, 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 to really pay the price for something they've done, and then they receive grace and mercy in response, they respond with humility. Oh my goodness, I didn't deserve this. Oh my goodness, this is, I'm being reminded of a gracious God that saved me. There's a grace here that I know I don't deserve. And it makes you more humble. It doesn't go, well, I must have done something right. God must be pleased with me because I just got grace in this situation. That's actually what it looks like to, to not be a believer, to almost begin to pat yourself on the back for what you think you've earned in order to get this. So now here they are. They're sitting here, and they're, they're, they're shocked, and they can't believe they're getting this kind of grace, this kind of mercy. And Joseph comes home, and they brought him the gift they had carried into the house, and they bowed to the ground before him. He asked if they were well, and he said, how's your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? He said, your servant, your father is well. Your servant, our father is well. He's still alive. And they knelt low and paid homage to him. And he looked and he saw his brother, his mother's son, and he asked, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother and he was about to weep. What you're seeing right now is this deep level of real, this beginning of real reconciliation. And all Joseph was worried about, he wasn't even worried about himself anymore. They couldn't touch him. They couldn't do anything to him. But his mindset is, what is going to happen here within this family? Are they going to go back with the same kind of heart that they brought me here with? Or is genuine heart change going to happen? Is this young boy safe? Look, I'm going to close with this. Think about this for a minute. When you think about how this text is viewed, and you think about how we're supposed to, what are we supposed to take from this? There's some deep things for all of us I think we can take here. But even in God's big vision, you notice something. When you remember, when you, when you think through why God did it this way, why God chose to use this story, there are a ton of stories he could throw in here. He throws this. This story is referred to in the New Testament. Matter of fact, this story is referred to in the book of Acts when the church is born. When you see the Holy Spirit fall on all believers for the first time instead of certain people, and after all of this happens, the church starts to grow. The church ends up electing certain officers for the church. You end up getting the first deacons. Among those were Stephen. Stephen's not only a deacon, he's an evangelist. He's preaching. And when he preaches, the people, are, and he's doing great wonders and signs, and he, they get so angry with Stephen for preaching about Jesus that they get ready to stone him. 
And we know because the scriptures say late that Paul actually was there consenting at his stoning, collecting his clothes. And here's what Stephen says. Stephen is there preaching before the people. He's preaching before the people and he's getting ready to be stoned. And he preaches one final sermon right before he gets stoned. And in that sermon, I mean, he's talking all the way through the Jews, explaining to them, what you're doing right now is just a repeat of what our forefathers have always done. And he starts walking through the habits because who are their forefathers? These same brothers that actually sold their one brother out. These same brothers who actually, the one that they rejected is the one in whom they had to find salvation. You see, in the same way that Joseph, what Joseph was, who Joseph was to the people of Egypt is who Jesus is actually to us. Listen to what Stephen says. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. And when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there, were carried back to Shechem, and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. What is he pointing out? He goes on later, and he starts to explain even more. We've always been the habit of rejecting the ones in whom we're supposed to find salvation. We've always been in the habit because of the things that we want to cling to and hold to. The most beautiful thing, though, is that in Jesus, there's something interesting here. Even though we are the ones deserving of the punishment, he's the one that actually gives us the extra gift. He's the one that gives us the extra grace. He's the one that actually says, even though you deserve punishment for what you've done, even though you're the one that actually deserves all the, the things that happened to me, even though you're the reason why I actually died, I'm not going to restore, I'm not going to respond with punishment for you. I'm going to respond with grace for you. I'm going to give you my righteousness. Yes, I'm going to take on all of the damage, all of the sin. So they get more. We get more. Even then, the patriarchs did because the patriarchs were still waiting for a Messiah that would fully take away all of the sin. We don't have to just wait for that. That's already been offered to us. That's the reason why now we can say there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. How can we say that? We don't have to live in the shame. We don't have to deny it, but we don't have to live in it because Jesus took that on. This is what it means. He has completely said, Jesus said, listen, everything I just told you all about reconciliation, here's the problem. When it comes to our relationship with God, there's just not enough things we can do to be able to demonstrate, okay, I promise I won't do it again. You know why? Because you're probably going to do something again because your sin nature is still there, right? But there has to be this genuine heart of repentance. But the problem is we would all go crazy. And some people, because of a very flawed view of Christianity, and a lot of ways the church has taught this version of Christianity, is everything's a meritocracy. Let me make sure I have my ledger over here. I've got, these are all the bad things that I did. These are all the good things that I did. As long as the good outweighs the bad, then it'll let me in. As long as I can hold myself to this list stringently, if I can make sure that I don't, okay, if I check this off, then I got to go do this over here. If I can check this off, then I got to go do this over here. You know what that is? That's an exhausting way to be. That's an exhausting way to be. If we've ever grown up in any forms of kind of legalist type religious backgrounds, 
That is an exalt, because you know what happens is you just never know which side of the ledger you're on. But there's something else to say, I can stand right now, regardless of which side of the ledger I'm on going, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I don't have to jump through any hoops. I can be broken. And there's definite faith and repentance. But it's a freeing thing. It's a free. It should be a freeing thing for us to walk into relationship with each other. Own the damage that's been there. Own it. Communicate it. And do the work. Why? Because I'm actually free to do it now. I'm not, I don't have to be. You realize that that will actually make you freer than you are right now just holding on to the things you're holding on to. You don't even realize, I don't even realize just how much of a prison I've created, a citadel I've created for myself because I'm just stuck wanting to just hold on to this thing. Either I've been the one doing wrong and I don't really want to let that go. I don't because I know what it's going to mean. If I have to walk into this, I'm probably going to have to walk into more and I don't want to do that either. So I just hold on and you just stay in this, it's so exhausting, and you're just holding on to this. And here's the sad thing. You're walking through life going, I hope no one ever knows this part of me. I hope no one ever knows that these are things that, I, that are major struggles for me. I may have hurt this person here, and, and sometimes what that means is I'll just avoid them for the rest of my life because I don't want to be reminded of just how bad I was to that person. But when we've been truly freed, I'm free to even take accountability for what this is. I'm free to have to, because at the end of the day, I'm not the one bearing all the weight, even though I deserve to. I'm not bearing all the weight. Jesus says, I love you enough so that you no longer have to carry that burden. I carry it for you. This is what it means when we start to realize, how do I love, how do I engage people who have been painful, who have caused injury, specifically if they've demonstrated a heart for repentance? Next week, we'll finish up because we're going to talk about what that repentance ended up looking like. But my question to you is, where are you right now? Are you the injurer? Are you the injured? Have you been both? How do you engage that? What excuses have you built up in your mind to just not seek out genuine reconciliation? What false definitions do you have of reconciliation that you're living in that's actually causing you to not really look like Jesus not really loving like Jesus. You actually don't have the heart of God and you think that you are because you have peace about it. What does that look like for you? My prayer is that we would be a church, we would be a people that says more than anything else, all I want to hold on to is the heart of God in every relationship I have. If any time, if anything happens where there's pain, if any, we should be a church where people can say, I feel legitimately hurt here. And our first response isn't, no, 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 you didn't understand. No, 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 that's not what I meant. It can be, I want to be able to own whatever it is that's here. I want to be able to acknowledge the pain that's really been here. The definition of humility here at Icon we've been living on is the ability to say, I would not put that past me. If there's real pain, are we willing to enter into each other's pain or are we defensive first? May we be a people that has God's heart in our relationships with each other and our relationship to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is, this is indeed a, a difficult, this is a difficult truth because all of us have been in positions where we have been hurt. Some of us are in positions where we are hurt. Some of us are in positions where we have done 
hurtful things. Some of us are in a position where we are in the midst of hurting others right now. And God, even some of us are completely unaware of the ways in which we have been an injurer. God, wherever we find ourselves, God, will you show us you first? Before we see what, what hurts us, before we see how we hurt others, God, will you remind us who holds us? God, I pray that you would give us such a deep, deep love for you and a deep desire that ultimately we don't ever have to feel like, oh man, I have to go and reconcile this thing. But in freedom in you, we actually say, I get to go and reconcile this thing. Father, I pray that we would truly have such a jealousy for your glory in our relationships that we can't think of anything else, that we can't sleep until we actually handle these issues first. God, we want to be this signpost of this kingdom that's coming, a kingdom that will have no more deceit, no more hurt, no more pain. So God, give us a, a foretaste of that right now, whatever that looks like. God, let us, God, Father, I pray that you would give us the freedom to flex our discomfort muscles, that we indeed would be okay with being uncomfortable entering into these places. And let us lean on your comfort and not our own. And we pray all of these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. As we come to this table, you know, you do realize that actually in the scriptures, it talks about us not even giving our offering until we've actually reconciled first. That's, that's, that's not a very popular thing for pastors to say, because usually they'll say it after they've gotten your offering. So I guess that is what I'm doing, but, but I want you to come back. Um, but ultimately, we're, we, we are supposed to be a people that says, I don't come with my gift before I actually come reconciling first. I don't come for communion until I've genuinely made a, a resolution in my heart to seek out genuine reconciliation. And so when we're coming here, when we come to partake, don't just think of this as just an individual action that you're taking. Don't let this just be about punctuating your personal relationship with Jesus. Because this is more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. When we come and partake of this, this is, this is a portmanteau, if you will, of two words, common and union. Communion is this idea that we have a, un, a uniting force, the very work, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus that unites us. And it's not just this abstract truth. It's a truth that's lived out and manifested in our lives. Why do I seek out reconciliation uh, with you? Because Jesus died bringing reconciliation to me. Why do I not give up until I've completely found a way to reconcile our relationship? Because Jesus never gives up in reconciling ours. See, there's a unity that should, we all are saying we believe. When we come here, we're saying, we believe in the unity of the body in such a way that I can't even come down here to partake in this kind of a thing until I know for sure that I have right relationship with my brother and my sister. Why? Because I know everything it took. I know what it is that I deserved because of who I am and because of my own brokenness. I know the grace that I've been given. And so when I come to partake of this means of grace, I'm doing this proclaiming that I'm living out this same grace in community. So if this is not true for you, if either individually this isn't true or collectively this isn't true, then this, we would say, let this time pass. Not because this is about who gets to be in the club. 
Ultimately, this is saying we want Jesus to meet us exactly where we are. We need not create. We need not create the ledger. Don't let communion be on the ledger. Don't let some kind of act in a church be, this is how I look like a Christian. This is what I must do to look like I'm uh, accepted by God. That's not what, that's not what this is. Ultimately, this is, I'm going to let this time, if I'm not there, or maybe even today, I'm not there. Maybe today, I believe in Jesus, and I love what he's done for me, and I believe in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, but there is a place in me where I'm just not ready to seek out genuine reconciliation, whatever that looks like. It may not necessarily mean the exact same relationship, but I, I don't know that I'm even ready. I can't even see this person, talk to this person. I'm not ready to go there yet. Then let this time pass, not as a form of punishment. Let this time pass to say, Lord, before I proclaim a common unity that I'm not ready to really live into right now, please work on my heart. You see, even that is a function of God's grace. The fact that he's willing to meet us even in our brokenness. We don't have to hide from him. So if this is true for you, then this meal is for you. And if it's not, God's grace still is here and is abundant. And we just stop and we pray. And we ask, God, impress this upon my heart. If I'm not broken enough, if I'm not moved enough to seek out reconciliation, God, will you break my heart? I'm not asking for you to make me see or overlook pain. I'm asking you to to break my heart in such a way to see how a lack of reconciliation pains you. And then maybe even then that'll be, uh, for some people here, maybe this can be the first time that you come with a repentant heart, communing, with the family of God. As our volunteers come, we just want to remind you that here at Icon, we do communion by the process of intention. So what that means is you'll come down the, the uh, middle aisle, starting in the back, and you'll come and take a piece of gluten-free bread, and you'll dip it in juice or wine as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he took the bread and he broke it. And you just think, we bring this up every time because I I just want us to see just how real this is, what this symbolizes and what this is every time. Jesus is standing there looking at some of the people that are going to betray him, that are going to lie, that are going to deny him. Basically, in many ways, people who would say or do things that people would have done to Joseph. And he's looking at them and he's looking at this meal, this meal of the Passover that they've celebrated for hundreds and thousands of years. And he takes the bread and looks at the very people that don't deserve any grace or mercy. And he says, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. What is he offering? Uh, The very means by which I'm giving you the grace you don't deserve, I'm offering this to you. It is a gift. This is what I'm going through to reconcile you back to the Father. Take and eat of it and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, blood poured out for the remission of sins. Do you get that? Blood poured out for the remission of sins. If, if he's got to shed his blood for us, that means there's something in us that disqualified us. He would have never had to shed not one drop of blood if, there was some, if everything was just all right in us. But because of the brokenness that estranged us from the Father, He says, not only is my body given for you, but this is my blood poured out for you, the blood of a new covenant for the remission of sins. Drink this, and every time you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. What Paul tells us is that every single time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. 
What are we proclaiming? Why are we proclaiming this? What we're proclaiming is ultimately the only hope that I truly have in, recon in, recon in being truly reconciled to God and to each other is not in this new definition of reconciliation I learned, this book on reconciliation I read, this conference I went to on reconciliation. All those things are great. They're wonderful. But if Jesus isn't who he said he is, if Jesus didn't just live this perfect life, if Jesus didn't just die this gruesome death in my place, but also if Jesus didn't resurrect, then there's no way in the world he has the power to reconcile me back to God. But if that tomb is empty, then that is the only hope that I have. So for even the situations that don't get reconciled on this side of eternity, the only hope I have to see this new heaven and new earth and see genuine, true, holy, holistic reconciliation, it's in the blood, it's in the body, and it's in the resurrection of Jesus. That is our hope. And if that's what you hold on to, if that's what you cling to, then come, be reminded, taste, and see that our Lord Jesus is indeed good. Let's eat together.